Hey everyone, it's Anita and Lucas. Welcome to Chain Reaction, where we unpack and explain the latest in crypto news, drama, and trends, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. During the second half of today's episode, we'll be chatting with Naveen Jain from Yacht. But before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about a meme stock that we all know and <laughs> are very familiar with after 2020. Yeah. So when a lot of people think about meme stock investing, some of them think of crypto coins, but a lot of them think about GameStop. So GameStop has a lot going on for it from uh, interesting perspectives, but they made one of their bigger launches this week. So they launched an NFT storefront where people can buy and trade NFTs online, right? Exactly. So they're, you know, you've got OpenSea out there. They're where the majority of transactions happen. Coinbase has tried to launch their own NFT marketplace and it has gone very poorly in terms of just how the launch went. So people saw GameStop doing this and thought that this was a big opportunity. A lot of GameStop's meme investors have bestowed a lot more value on the stock as a result of them getting into the blockchain game. But it's been a little bit of a turbulent time for GameStop this week also. This week wasn't just about them doing this NFT launch. They also had some layoffs at the company. They fired their CFO. It's a little turbulent. Yeah, the layoffs were really weird and interesting because they did the NFT marketplace launch right after, a couple days after. And we will talk about how that went. But you know, the backdrop to this is that the CEO, Matt Furlong, wrote a letter to employees and he announced that there were going to be layoffs. He didn't say how many employees were being let go. He didn't say what division they were going to be let go in. He was overall in this letter pretty unclear about what actually was going to go on. But in the first line of the letter, he mentioned the word blockchain. And so it really goes to show GameStop is trying to sort of like capitalize on its status as a meme stock. And I think you know, go into crypto and, and see see how it goes, see whether it sticks for them. And, and it's funny because they actually made a $381 million loss in their last fiscal year. So this is sort of a, sh- a moonshot, if you will. Well, if you think back to 2018 or when like the big last crypto bull run was, there were all these companies, companies like Kodak were just like, we're going to put blockchain in our stock ticker. And all of a sudden, investors are going to give us crypto-like returns because we're a crypto company. So in some ways, GameStop pivoting to blockchain Maybe that would work better in a bull market. But like right now, I hazard the guess that being a crypto company isn't necessarily a big asset for a yeah. public, public stock. Yeah, it's not the greatest time to launch an NFT marketplace. But how, how and, did the launch go? Well, and, and yet the launch didn't do that poorly. So basically the way the platform works is it's kind of a separate blockchain. It's a layer two on the Ethereum blockchain called Loopring. So you have to mint the NFTs on the platform and then sell them on the platform. So it's a little self-contained in a way. But they did about $2 million in sales on the launch day, which if you're looking at their transaction fees, which is just a percentage or two, ultimately doesn't mean that much money. It means just a few tens of thousands of dollars, which like to a public tech stock that's like trying to, you know, be worth It's probably like less than 1% of their revenue. <laughs> right. So it's not it's not a ton of money. They launched with a number of projects on board. The bulk of this 2 million dollars in sales came from a couple of the projects. So they had a couple of successes. The question is, how does this scale? How does this work going forward? Did they get a big bump from it being the first day and people wanted to get at the ground level? Is that going to sustain? Yeah. These are all things to wonder. But at the end of the day, they did more in sales on their first day than it seems like Coinbase has done on their first day. So it's like kind of showcasing how poorly Coinbase NFT did in their beta launch that even GameStop could do better. That's actually wild because, I mean, GameStop must have some pretty hardcore devotees because if you can't really transfer your NFTs 
from you know a different blockchain from Solana or Ethereum onto the GameStop ecosystem, then you really have to be committed that okay, this is like this is my NFT marketplace of choice, right? Is that how it works? Yeah. So I mean, basically, GameStop is trying to build a gaming NFT marketplace, and you know, trying to be a brand extension, but focus on on games. So like to date, most of the projects that are on board kind of look like your average NFT profile pick projects. And I think it's going to be a very hard sell to actually bring studios or publishers into the weave of this platform. But they have this big ambition. They want to see how it shakes out. We'll see. I am very skeptical it's going to work. (laughs) GameStop has defied a lot of conventional skepticism just by virtue of being kind of the collective internet meme coin stock. So uh, I'll give hey, you the, the one defense of this move. Okay. <laughs> I'll give you the one defense of this move and yeah. it's not, it's not major, but basically if they do this online marketplace and they move more into online products, I mean, they're the, the bread and butter of their business is brick and mortar retail stores yeah. and those have huge overhead costs. So they're not making a ton of money off of this. They may not, but also the initial investment. I mean, they had to invest to actually build out the NFT marketplace itself. But every time there's a transaction on it, the cost of that revenue is super, super low. So maybe that's what they're thinking that, you know, this is just sort of some like extra icing on the cake that they can they can grab if people are interested. But it's also not as high risk because the investment for that revenue is low. Yeah. Operating at tech stock multiples and still being a company that has brick and mortar stores as your main business doesn't seem the most (laughs) sustainable. So I can understand them wanting to be a true tech company. Live up to the tech hype. Well, exactly. And I mean, (laughs) it is just not the, the greatest time to be putting all of your hopes and dreams into NFTs. But, you know, maybe it works out. Yeah, maybe they'll be calling you from the moon, Lucas, next year. Who knows? But uh, <laughs> I, Well, yep, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> Speaking of uh, it not being a great time for crypto... Yes. So there was some some action happening this past week and over the past several weeks with a very large crypto hedge fund. What went down there, Anita? So 3AC has been the name on everyone's lips this past couple of weeks. They are a hedge fund. They were founded in 2012 and they, as of March, managed $10 billion in assets. So that's pretty large. Okay. Pretty established, (laughs) like sort of maybe not a well-known name, but a name that had their hands in a lot of different crypto projects. And that all came crashing down because of the bear market. And 3AC ended up having to file for bankruptcy. And because of their troubles, they also affected a bunch of other different projects like Celsius and their collapse was linked to 3AC in some way. Like a lot of these different big headlines that you've been seeing about crypto companies collapsing were in some way linked to this hedge fund because they they were everywhere. And so their founders, they filed for Chapter 15 bankruptcy on July 1st. So just not, not too long ago. And that was in a British Virgin Islands court. So this court in the BVI is supposed to take them through the bankruptcy proceedings, essentially liquidate all of their assets and sell them to other people or distribute all of the assets of the company. But there's one little problem, which is that the two founders, allegedly, according to the liquidation firm, have disappeared. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, they did resurface on Tuesday, right? But basically what happened was that neither of them, Zhu Su and Kyle Davies, those are their names, they are both former traders for Credit Suisse. And last week they had a Zoom call with the liquidators to you know, talk about what they're going to do, get a plan together of what the bankruptcy proceeding is going to look like. And apparently neither founder turned on their video. Both were muted for the duration of the call. All dialogue was conducted through their legal counsel. And they said that they plan to cooperate with the proceedings, but they said, they promised liquidators like, hey guys, like we're going to send you the information that you need after this call. And they never sent it. So the liquidators are still upset and they're saying these guys are nowhere in sight. 
and they disappeared. They didn't post on social media. One of them deleted their Instagram. But then on Tuesday this week, Zhu broke his silence on Twitter and he wrote that the firm's efforts, they had been trying to cooperate with creditors. And he said that they had been met with quote unquote baiting. You know, he was he was really upset about how the proceedings had gone. I don't really exactly know what that means. But Zhu also mentioned <laughs> that, you know, they're working under a lot of time pressure. Um, they had received threats of violence, which is, you know, not great. And they were basically trying to convey the message of like, look, guys, there's a lot of shit going on in our lives. We don't have time to send you all the documents that you need. The liquidators, on the other hand, are saying, you know, they're saying they're trying to cooperate, but they're not actually trying to cooperate because they haven't sent us any of the information. And there's one big concern that comes from all of this. People are worried that Zoo and Kyle have actually sent funds from 3AC outside, right, that they're actually trying to sort of get out of the situation by transferring their funds. Like there have been some reports of some of their NFTs being transferred to other crypto wallets outside of Singapore, which is where they're headquartered. Yes. So this whole scenario is a little bit of a nightmare. I mean, if you look at kind of the backdrop of the past few months of the crypto bear market, there have been a handful of kind of triggering events. Big one was Terra and UST. And a lot of people were just like hating on Doquan, the founder of the project, immediately when all of that stuff went south. 3AC has been another one of these big scenarios. And when you've got $10 billion in assets and like all of these crypto lending firms had money tied up in 3AC. Like BlockFi has been having a tough few months and they mentioned that they had like tens of millions of dollars that they lost because they were invested in the 3AC's projects. So on one hand, I can understand why they would want to be silent on Zoom and they would want to <laughs> let their lawyers communicate for them because $10 billion is a lot of money. So I am them saying that they're getting death threats, I don't doubt for a second because I feel like me scrolling Twitter, I see a lot of people just like saying some some awfully bad things about them. And when you lose $10 billion, you're probably kind of setting yourself up for that. So it's, it's a bit of a cautionary tale, but I'll be curious how this shakes out. I mean, it seems like it just has to shake out in a really, really messy way. I don't see how it could be clean in any capacity. So the fact that it's starting off messy, like this is only going to get messier in my mind. Yeah. And a lot of legal experts are saying it's going to take forever for any of this to actually get resolved and for people to get their money back. I think it's another example. We've been seeing a couple of these in the past few months that really erodes trust in crypto. What happens when you lose a lot of money? It's a giant fuck up. And the, the <sighs> founders you know, seem to be missing in action. And instead of... It's hard. Yeah. It's hard to take accountability for losing $10 billion. People are going to be mad at you no matter what you say or what you do after that. But cooperating with the uh, bankruptcy proceedings seems, at least to me, like sort of bare minimum. And, and if they really are, I mean, I'm not... I don't know whether they are or not, but if they really are siphoning funds away to other accounts outside of the jurisdiction of this BVI court, then that's an even worse look because then it's possible that they could be saving themselves and letting everyone else get screwed. Yeah. I mean, the core ethos of crypto is often just like trying to advance your own interests. And the fact is you can lose a lot of money incredibly quickly in crypto as evidenced by the collapse of this fund. But it's a lot harder to kind of navigate through the legal proceedings in order to make some of those like stakeholders whole again. So I think looking at this like I don't know, even like the biggest crypto maxis and bulls are kind of looking at the scenario thinking like, hey, maybe we need some like vague regulatory oversight in order to ensure that some of the big lending powers in this space aren't taking money from one pocket, putting it in another, saying that they have the same money and putting it somewhere else because all of the situation is just, you know, a, mess, <laughs> a disaster. Yeah. Yes. 
What's crazy to me about this is that there have been so many calls for more regulation in crypto for so long. And in this particular case, it seems at least to me that the legal system proceeded the way it was supposed to proceed. Like things worked, things functioned, right? They filed for chapter 15. The court ended up running those proceedings. They appointed a firm to do the liquidation. And the firm is trying to liquidate those assets in the legally correct manner. But, you know, just because you have a law or just because you have a regulation doesn't mean it can be enforced. And I think that's a lot of the challenge that crypto is going to face. Even if we do get more regulation, how do you actually ensure people aren't skirting those regulations and sending money to a different country that may, might have different rules. Yeah, I mean, working as designed is like, uh, I, I don't know. people. <laughs> Bare the people the, well, the, no, I mean, the people who are like on the losing end of this 3AC deal are probably, they're not looking at this liquidation process like, like regulation working, at yeah. work. Yeah, they're thinking, how can we stop this from happening in the first place? Which, you know, was not a question they were asking two months ago when this company was minting money, which is always yeah. the issue. They want to fix things after things work out poorly for them. But while it's going good, they have no follow-up questions to ask. They're just like, where do we send the checks? So I don't know. Everything in crypto is a learning opportunity. But like for people who lost tens and hundreds of millions of dollars with this, like you got to think that maybe they have different questions that they ask during the next bull cycle. But at the same time, when the money's flowing, you kind of just you put it somewhere and you don't ask questions and you just hope it grows. So <laughs> this might not be a scenario where anyone learns anything, but people lost a lot of money and that's all yeah, that comes of it. It is unfortunate, but you know, I, I think that does tie in nicely to our, our next topic that I wanted to talk about, which is that there are still, even though all of this shit is going down in the crypto markets and it's a really rough time, you know, prices are down, funding for individual startups has gone down. There are still a lot of crypto funds out there that have been raising a ton of capital from their investors. Yeah. And we covered a bunch of them this week for TechCrunch. One of the things is that like it takes a while to raise a fund. So I'm sure some of the conversations with their limited partners to raise this money were happening before things completely imploded across the board. But at the same time, all of these big venture firms spent a long time trying to get their investors on board with the idea that crypto is a very long term investment and buying into it like the key to riches is just waiting and being patient. It's a <laughs> Keep waiting. I'm still waiting. It's a lot easier to buy into some of this stuff during a bull market when you're just riding the wave up. When you don't know what the bottom of the wave looks like, things are a lot more complicated. But there are a few different funds. So who raised some money? Yeah, so we got a couple different funds that raised money. But before we get into that, just to give you a little backdrop on how bad the overall VC market actually is for startups, um, according to CB Insights, we got Q2 numbers recently and venture deals in the second quarter of 2022, we're down 23% from the first quarter. And this was the biggest quarterly percentage drop in deals and the second largest drop in funding in a decade. So this isn't just like any bear market for VC. This is actually very, very bad. Startups are struggling to get cash. But on the other side of it, you asked which funds raised. I mean, we had a new crypto fund announced by Lightspeed, Multicoin, Protagonist. There's a couple others. But just to talk about the Lightspeed one for a second, you know, they've been investing in crypto for years now. I think, you know, eight or nine years. And they unveiled this new independently managed crypto native investment team. And so it's through a joint venture with Faction VC. And it's going to be led by two investors. And one of them is the former co-founder of Blockchain Ventures. So Lightspeed has raised $7 billion total across four different funds. And most of that isn't for crypto. They, they weren't clear about how much is actually going to be allocated to the crypto native team specifically. But Lightspeed has been a really big player in this space. They invested in blockchain.com. They invested in FTX before it took off. And I just think it's really interesting that now is sort of the timing 
for them to announce this fundraise. Obviously, we don't know when all of the capital actually closed. We don't know if that was you know earlier and they're only choosing to announce it now. But it's still a very, very big fund launch in the crypto ecosystem at a time when people are not very optimistic. Yeah, Lightspeed is an interesting fund. I mean, so there have been a number of kind of like Web2, quote unquote, funds that have been doing larger crypto deals and they're building up like separate crypto arms. Lightspeed has been like a little slower than some of the others like Sequoia. Sequoia recently put together their crypto fund. I mean, Andreessen has had several crypto funds. Lightspeed, their big partner was Amy Wu, who left Lightspeed to go and start FTX Ventures. So after she's left, they've kind of been a little, you know, they've been searching a little bit. So I think like this is, it's interesting that they're doing this now. I'm curious how quickly they're going to be making investments in this space just because the timing isn't entirely the best. That's what doesn't seem to square up for me. You know, these VC firms are, are raising a ton of capital, but it doesn't seem that they're actually deploying it. So, Well, doing it through partnership is interesting also because it's like maybe they can just end the partnership without like firing the people potentially. I'm not saying this is what they're going to do, but I'm, you know, it's different than starting Lightspeed Crypto. Yeah, it's a way to de-risk in a way. Yes. So that's, that's interesting. $7 billion, a lot of money. And like you said, a lot of venture capitalists are just sitting on funding right now. They've seen all of their public deals just completely crater. They've been trying to catch falling knives and seeing these deals get worse and worse and worse. So I'd imagine if you're like hearing about some hot new deal, you're not going to be immediately writing the check. You're going to be like, all right, well, am I getting the best possible deal right now? Or am I, could I do this deal in a month at half the valuation? Yeah. So get a discount. I'm honestly shocked that it's only down 20 something percent, because when you look at like the number of public stocks that have dipped from half or 75 percent of their all time highs in the public markets, I can see them being a little hesitant to drop significant dollars on new private companies. What's interesting, though, is that I have heard a little bit about different VC firms taking bigger stakes in the public markets, even though that's not really what they do. But I guess, you know, the public markets are looking a lot worse right now. And maybe they kind of think now is the time to get in. And, you know, the prices are looking really low and they'll get some sort of discount, whereas private markets, they're still waiting for the second shoe to drop in, in some ways. Right. And I, they say the same thing about like, if you're a startup employee or something, would you rather go work for a big tech company that has already taken a huge market cap haircut on public markets and have like your stock package be tied to whatever the public stock is right now? Or go work for a company that raised in 2021 at a $5 billion valuation and go get a stock package where that's obviously completely divorced from reality. Yeah. And it's an interesting facet of a lot of these firms having become registered investment advisors, which allows them to hold a lot more tokens, but also allows them to invest in public stocks. Yeah, well, Lightspeed is a Web2 firm, as you mentioned, or, you know, that's sort of what they are known for. And they are investing in crypto, have invested in crypto, but that hasn't been historically their focus. There's been a couple other fund launches from crypto native funds. And one of the highest profile ones this week was from Multicoin. They raised a $430 million fund, and that was actually their largest fund to date. So I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, they're an interesting fund. And I think being a crypto native fund raising a big pile of cash right now is fascinating. One of the things a story in the block noted that the founders of the fund are actually the biggest LPs in the fund, which means they've got a lot of money that they're putting up to yeah. on, on their own. Wait, they're, wait, wait. they're putting so, a lot okay, of money so in themselves. Yeah. The founders are investing as angels in the venture fund multi-coin, essentially, right? So it's like they're investing in themselves, kind of. They're the biggest LPs in their fund, according to the block. Wow. Their capital makes up the lion's share of the capital of the fund. It's fascinating. And, and I think it, it's like a lot of the crypto money stays insular in some way. And it's just like going to ride out this winter. They want to 
have most of their net worth in crypto. It definitely speaks to their optimism. I mean, I, I don't know that I'd make such a big bet on my my own skills or my own talents. That's not where I'd put my two hundred million personally. I'd, <laughs> I, yeah, I'd put it elsewhere probably. <laughs> yeah, but good for them. You know, having that confidence. I, I think that is one of the quirks of crypto, and just one of the things I find so fascinating about this space is, like you said, the money has stayed fairly insular compared to other industries where, you know, it seems to be like people who made their money in crypto are supporting crypto startups right now. And those crypto startups are eventually, they're hoping, return enough to enrich those people who invested in the first place. Like it's sort of this closed loop thing that just happens in crypto. And maybe that's why, even though the markets are suffering so much right now, it seems there's a little bit of optimism because it's sort of just people in crypto who are already rich, like transferring money around to, to each other in some ways. Well, yeah, that's a that's a whole nother conversation. But yes. Oh, it is. Yes. It is. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to that next time. Exactly. Exactly. For this week's interview, we talked with Naveen Jain, founder and CEO of Yacht, about digital identities in Web3. Yacht provides unique emoji usernames that people use to link to their crypto wallets and other online services. Naveen, it is awesome to have you. Thank you so much, Anita and Lucas. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, so I mean, I think just starting things off, it's a very interesting time for Web3. <laughs> I, I'm curious, do you feel like we're living in the metaverse right now? And if so, what are we missing? We're totally living in the metaverse right now. <laughs> Life is a simulation. No, in, in all seriousness, I, I think that the metaverse is more of like a concept. And I think we are totally like in sort of the emerging metaverse, you know, this world where we actually own like our digital things and we connect with each other in unique and different ways. So I think we're sort of at the beginning of it. Does, in your mind, does the metaverse like really involve ownership and capitalism at the core of it all? Or like, does it, is the culture different? Does it look different? Like, how does that- What, what does the metaverse mean to you is kind of what we're asking here. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I think the core primitive of Web3 is the idea of verifiable digital asset ownership, right? Like that's like the core thing. And I think when someone owns something, it says a lot about them, you know, far more than just, for example, clicking on a like button on some website. So when you own something, it's sort of like conviction in that thing, right? You have something at risk, potentially, if you own something, you've spent some money or time or whatever it is to like own the thing. And there's many dimensions of ownership. Are you the first person to own the thing? Do you own multiple of the thing? How long have you owned the thing? So I'm not going to sit here and say like the metaverse is all about capitalism, but I do think that there is a core primitive here we have in Web3. And I think that is sort of like a core building block, if you will, for the quote unquote metaverse. I mean, I want to talk to you a little bit about your company, Yacht, that you've built that everyone has sort of been talking about lately, which gives you a unique emoji identifier for people who want to purchase one. And you have described it as a self-sovereign identity solution. So I'm curious if you can just explain to us a little bit, what does that mean? And what about that solution makes it a Web3 company? Yeah, totally. We think it's sort of like really interesting how in the real world, we all own our names, right? Like we own our identities. And there's many dimensions to one's identity. Like our identities are far more than just our names. For example, maybe like the job we do, the hobbies we keep, you know, the fashion choices we make, you know, these are all like, 
dimensions of identity. And on the internet, the world that we've created together so far is one where we don't really own our identities. You know, when you go register an account on a traditional social network or some like web platform, you don't really own the account and they can shut it down whenever they want. And that happens all the time. So we think that it's really important for people to own their internet identities just like they do their real life identities. So the idea behind Yat is that you create this emoji identity, which is really expressive. It's really beautiful. They're super fun. It's a universal language because emojis are a universal language. You know, everybody on the planet who's connected to the internet speaks emoji. They don't all speak English. And you can use these strings of emoji to really tell beautiful stories about yourself that may otherwise be like harder to tell with just a traditional alphanumeric username. And then the idea is that you actually own these yats forever. So the whole model behind yat is that it's like pay once, own forever. And then ultimately, these YATs are on-chain identities over time. So that's like part of how they're connected to, to the Web3 ecosystem. I guess like if I was in the real world, though, I could change my name to Elon Musk and you know, <laughs> people would maybe be forced Please to call me that. Please don't do that, Lucas. Yeah, yeah, probably unwise. Don't want to get accidentally sued. But in that case, you know, exclusivity is not necessarily innate to the real world, but it does feel innate to the Web3 world. Sure. So I guess like, why does it matter that someone else can't have the same emoji identifier? I know why it does, because it's a URL and it only goes one place. But why does the future have to be like exclusive? So I would argue that even if you and I had the exact same name, you and I probably feel <laughs> like we own our own identities, right? So I could be named Lucas as well but I'm probably going to be a different Lucas than you, right? Like you and I are going to make- But I'd still feel that way if our names were dot .yad or something, if we had the same dot .name. I'd still feel like I was a unique person just because that's my experience. Right, that's, that's certainly true. But I guess the question is, is, is there a way for you to be able to see my identity? So say, for example, like I'm really into astronomy and my yat was like telescope, explosion, star, or something like that. Is there a way for you to see my identity- mm-hmm and learn something about me just from my identity, sure. right? And, and that's the real power of Yat, is that you can actually learn a story about somebody just by seeing their identity for the very first time, like the first impression. Whereas if you just saw that my name is Naveen, I could be like one of a million Naveens out there in the world. You're not really gonna know anything about me. So the idea behind Yat is that they're really expressive. They enable you to tell stories and they can be your own story. Now, can someone create a Yat that is similar to Telescope Explosion Star, like someone else who's really into astronomy? Of course they can. And that's part of the fun of it is that you can own it It can be your unique version of that story, and it's also your unique identity. Gotcha. So one question I had for you, Naveen, on Yat and what you're building is, I've read about some of the context, and it seems like you've really been taking it slow in entering Web3, and you you have sort of expressed this view that decentralization is sort of a progressive, gradual process. And even today, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, but to my understanding, Yats are still paid for in dollars rather than in cryptocurrency. And your domains are sort of registered like traditional Web2 domains. And I know that you're sort of talking about transitioning in the future, but can you talk to me a little bit about why you want to take it slow, why you've made that decision and what your plans are in the future to uh, make this a project built on the blockchain? Yeah, totally. So we believe very strongly in the concept of progressive decentralization. So decentralization involves many trade-offs. So one of the key trade-offs is around user experience. If you think about it, there's like close to 5 billion internet-connected people on the planet. And we would argue that most people who are connected to the internet 
probably don't really care about whether or not something is decentralized. Like they care about convenience, they care about, you know, saving time, saving money, connecting with friends. Like these are all the things people generally care about on the internet. So how do you create a product that is really easy to use, really beautiful, really gets the user experience right, and at the same time ultimately becomes decentralized? And we think that you do that sort of in a sequence. So the sequence is, from our point of view, nail the user experience, create something that people really, really want out there, make it really fun to use and easy to use, and then work towards decentralizing it because then you can actually like retain the ease of use. You can figure out what the user patterns are that really make it you know easy to use and fun to use for a wider range of people versus just people who are crypto native. Because the reality is the crypto native community is still really small. Mm-hmm. You know right. what, what's the latest count? I think the latest count is there's like 81 million or something Ethereum wallets out there. Like that's the latest count of Ethereum wallets compared to the nearly five billion internet connected people. Like it's a rounding error today, right? So um, that's the first thing. The second thing is we care deeply about how products like Yat are born and what the ultimate outcome is for a product like Yat. So something you may not know is that Yat is actually a product of Tari Labs. Like our parent company is called Tari Labs. And Tari is actually stewarding a new default private digital asset protocol, like a new layer one. And the goal there is really that, gosh, you know, if you think about protocols like Ethereum and Solana and these other existing protocols that we all use today, they're not private in any way, shape or form, right? If you have someone's wallet address, you can see their entire transaction history from the beginning of time. And we think that's a real challenge for people over the long haul. So the vision for Yat is first, let's make Yat a beloved product by many many people, people who are native to crypto and also people who are like adjacent to crypto or early adopters sort of generally in Web2. And then second, let's decentralize Yat on Tari so that we have the privacy benefits that we think ultimately are really going to matter in the future web that we want to like co-create with our community. I mean, privacy-centric blockchains have been kind of challenges for people. I mean, like, how are you planning to go against some of these kind of underlying issues they have in terms of like, all of a sudden, if they're not verifiable by the public, you're just waiting for you to verify it, in which case... How does that change anything? Well, so I I think that this really comes down to, I mean, again, this is our point of view and there's some ideology here, but our point of view is that human beings deserve agency over their stories. So for example, the three of us are having a conversation here today and each party came to this conversation essentially as a closed book, right? Like we're all, the three of us are choosing to share what we want to share and the manner that we want to share it. And the way the internet has evolved is sort of like a a very different thing, right? So the minute you connect to the internet, you're essentially being tracked in a variety of ways. Like your internet service provider is tracking you, every website you visit is tracking you. And now when you engage with existing blockchains like Ethereum and Solana, et cetera, now like everyone is essentially tracking you in all these sorts of ways. And what that results in is a world where you've lost all agency and control over your own storytelling. And we think that's really negative because it's kind of crazy to think that someone can just be judged by a single transaction that they do on Ethereum. Like I have a really good friend as an example, who recently was one of their wallets on Ethereum, you know, they, they transferred a bunch of assets from wallet A to wallet B, and then they started selling a bunch of these assets on wallet B. And everyone thought like, oh my gosh, this person is fire selling their assets. What the heck is going on? 
and they started to get judged on Twitter. Like people are like judging this person for selling assets, in some cases, fire selling assets, selling them for below like market value. But what they don't know about this person is that the person is actually going through a divorce and you're not going to see that the divorce is not metadata on Ethereum. Like that's private information. So people are judging the person based on transaction data on Ethereum. They don't have the whole story. And I think there's like lots of examples like that that are just really like patently unfair. And so I think our view is that we should create a world together where people have control over their stories. They can choose the way they want to tell the story and the stories they want to share. And that's our vision ultimately for Atari enabled world. I want to go and link this back to what you were saying about yeah, earlier, which is just that it is this product that you're trying to build into this consumer facing beloved sort of brand. And what I guess I'm struggling to understand is a lot of people talk about the pros of blockchain being providing transparency, right? But it sounds like what you're talking about is a little different. And so I'm just curious, like, what's the need to put this on a blockchain? If people are sort of interacting with these emoji identifiers, if they're using them, and if it sort of turns into the social network, what is the added utility of putting it on a blockchain? And is that something people even want? So the value of having something like a YAT on a blockchain is it really comes down to ownership, right? So we want to create a world where you can actually own a YAT in a completely self-sovereign way. And if like we cease to exist over time, that ownership doesn't go away, right? That's like one benefit to it being on something like a blockchain, number one. Number two, there's a whole concept also around censorship resistance, which we think is also a really powerful thing that you get with something like Yat being issued on a decentralized protocol, like in the future, like Tari. So those are two like very distinct benefits that you wouldn't get if something like a Yat is just issued by us using like a centralized service. So ultimately that's our goal is we really want people to own their identities. We want their identities just like our names, like my name can't be censored out there, you know, in the world. We should be able to like tell our stories in the way that we want to tell them, share what we want to share, and we should have true ownership on the internet for our identities. I think, you know, there's been this kind of like meme in a way of like, do consumers actually care about ownership at all? Sure. And I know that like, if you look in the grand scheme of things, like there are certain reasons that they would, but people aren't acting entirely rationally during a bull market. So a lot of these habits that people in the NFT community are building up aren't necessarily things that are going to last forever. I guess like, what do you think is going to last and what do you think won't last? Like what's a trend? What's like baked into the ethos of of crypto and Web3? So I actually think people really care a lot about ownership, right? There's a lot of in real life examples of this. Like if you are really passionate about a thing and it could be anything, like maybe you're passionate about cars or watches or music or whatever it is, like say you're passionate about music and you own a t-shirt, you know, for your favorite band that you bought on tour, like ownership is a story, right? It's like a story Mm -hmm. that people can tell about themselves. So for example, my favorite band in the world is Rage Against the Machine. So I'm really excited. I'm definitely going to go to one of their shows. They're on tour right now. I'm so excited about it. And I'm one of those people who's going to pay for a t-shirt at the merch stand. And I'm going to own that t-shirt, right? I'm going to own it. It's a story. So in the future, when I'm wearing that shirt out and someone goes, oh man, I you re- I love Rage too. That's really awesome that you love Rage Against the Machine. I can say, oh my gosh, yeah. Actually, I got to see them at Madison Square Garden or whatever venue it was. And I bought this thing at the venue and it's a story, right? So ownership is really connected to storytelling. And I think that the way people tell stories about themselves tied to the things that they own is a really powerful, very human thing. And I think that's something that should absolutely exist with regards to digital assets, just as much as it exists with regards to our IRL assets. 
Yeah, I mean, I think about the things that I would be disappointed if I lost in the world. And like some of them would be like, I have a certain affinity towards my Twitter handle or something. Sure. And I, I realize that if the company went belly up, I wouldn't have that anymore. But I also recognize that some of these things are innately valuable because of the platforms they're tied to. And as you talk about kind of the platform opportunities for your company, sometimes the individual identity doesn't matter as much as you know, what it fits into. Sure. So I guess like, do you feel like you have to build a whole ecosystem just to kind of give people more value for their emoji username or like, how does that work? Yeah. So I think at the end of the day, an identity is kind of worth what you make it. So, I mean, that's really ultimately how identity is, is valuable out there. Obviously, we have a responsibility in that regard as well. So, for example, you know, we have partnerships out there with like wallet companies like blockchain.com and Cake Wallet and My Monero, mm -hmm. where you can use your yats to send and receive crypto with other users. You know, we have a, a partnership with Opera, the web browser, where you can actually just type in emojis in the URL bar. No.com, no HTTPS or www required, just literally emojis in the URL bar, and it'll resolve to whatever website sure. you've associated with your yat. So these are examples of utility or things that people can do with their yats today. And then obviously that will expand as time goes on. Now, the vision for yat ultimately is that it's an open platform. So ultimately people can integrate with yat in basically any way they desire. Um, there's no like cost to do that or anything. So as yat expands as a type of identity on the internet, our hope is that more and more people want to integrate it in various things. And then we also have our own ideas. So, you know, we have our own ideas around things that we can build on our own. So like, you know, we have a new version of Yat that we're rolling out that has like new capabilities. So we also have like our own ideas in terms of things that people will be able to do with their Yats. Yeah, so I'm curious to hear more about that. I mean, I've talked to a lot of different founders in this space, and I've heard a lot about this idea of the crypto wallet sort of becoming a new way for people to express their identities. Sure. One founder I was talking to was sort of likening it to the mobile phone. You know, like you go there for your financial transactions, your social interactions. And it sounds like that's sort of similar to the vision that you're building with Yacht. So I'm wondering, as you think of the idea of letting folks own their own identities, what sort of tooling are you building around that? I mean, the classic example that I can think of is like the ETH wallet, right? The ENS domain and how that integrates with the ETH wallet. Do you want to do that on one chain? Are you looking at it with multiple chains? Like what sorts of tools will people have to actually own their own identities? Yeah, really great question. So first of all, thinking about like the mass public, I don't think people are ultimately going to care about one chain or another. You know, ultimately these chains are essentially databases. So I don't know that people long term are going to care about Ethereum versus Solana versus Tari versus some other blockchain in the future. Number one. Number two, I think the wallets have an important role to play for sure. I mean, that's sort of like where you have your stuff. Wallets are also very challenged because there's like lots of complex UX baked into a wallet experience. So the idea of a wallet being ultimately some kind of a super app is sort of like a challenging idea in a lot of ways. But I agree with you that a wallet is something that someone can own and control, and that's where you can store your assets, including things like YATs. I mean, YATs can be minted on Ethereum today, so you can certainly have a YAT asset in any Ethereum wallet today. But over time, we think that a wallet 
is really a tool for interoperating with lots of different types of applications, right? So you can, you know, attest to ownership of your wallet, and then you can literally use that as a way to like connect with lots of different types of products and services. So our vision isn't necessarily to create a wallet experience. Our vision is to create an identity experience that integrates with all kinds of wallets, and then also create adjacent services that people can use using their YATs. I guess, you know, if I'm setting up a crypto wallet, I have that unique identifier, and it's not very sexy because it's like, you know, 20 random alphanumeric characters, never going to remember it. Nobody else is either. But I guess in the grand scheme of things, like people buying like a two or three character yet, like they are kind of buying into a certain version of the exclusive exclusivity in the clout. But do you feel like clout is like a powerful enough motivator to bootstrap a network? So first of all, yachts start at only $4, right? Sure. So the majority of yachts are $4. They're pay once, own forever. Sold some expensive ones, though. We have. We have. So we've sold, for example, a single emoji yacht for many hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? So that's certainly true. And yeah, just like in any other world, you know, there's a varying degrees of rarity and scarcity with yachts. And just like people care about that sort of thing in other dimensions of identity, same thing of someone like deciding to buy a Ferrari or someone deciding to buy an expensive car, you know, that is like a a flex. So we think that, you know, there's like lots of reasons why people like to do that. It's status. It's a way to show off. It's a way to like connect with people in a certain way of a certain level. You know, there are lots of reasons why people do that. Mm -hmm. So we think that the same is true within the YAT ecosystem, but it's certainly not focused on that, right? Like, you 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 know, it's not like a, a board ape or something where the minimum price to buy in is like six figures. <laughs> right, right, right. It's like, you know, you can buy a yacht, you can create an incredible yacht for only four dollars. I am I'm a little curious on this part though. And this is just a, a general NFT question, but like for a lot of the networks that are having some of these super high dollar sales right now, like that just happens in a bull market generally. Like your network might not be selling as many single character yachts in a crypto winter, for instance. So I guess like how do you mentally prepare for that in terms of just being a startup and knowing that like maybe all of this funding coming in right now isn't necessarily recurring? but you have to kind of like build for the future. Yeah, so I think at the end of the day, our job, and I think any builder's job, any startup founder's job, is to figure out ways to create as much value for your users, your community, as humanly possible. And money really follows the value that you create. So from our point of view, sure, I mean, you're certainly right that in a more of a bear market, people are not going to be as open to spending huge sums of money on things. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. certainly true. But, you know, I think there are lots of ways that we can create value for our users, regardless of the market cycle. Mm -hmm. And I think there are lots of ways for us to expand the pie, grow the pie for our user base, regardless of the market cycle. And I think for NFT projects, I think the same is probably true too. You know, lots of NFT projects, as you know, are really focused on their IP. You know, it's like, oh, we're going to create the next Star Wars, or we're going to create the next Pixar, or the next, you know, Mm -hmm. Mickey Mouse, or whatever it is. And so they're thinking of other ways to expand the pie in terms of creating value for their users. We're doing the exact same thing, except we think about, okay, how can we make YATs really powerful in terms of self-expression? How can we make YATs really usable and functional in lots of different ways? And how can we create like new kinds of social experiences around YATs that don't really exist today. So I want to end with this question of, as you grow the company, how are you going to sort of balance this idea of accessibility with exclusivity? I mean, I know that you use an algorithm to determine the price of each individual yacht. So I I want to know a little more about like, you know, how does that algorithm work? And is it sort of like as people continue to buy up more and more of these emoji combos, the prices are just going to continue to go up? Or 
are you thinking about access in, in a different way? Yeah, currently within five characters uh, within the YAT ecosystem today, there's over 20 trillion possible combinations for a YAT. So there's more than enough YAT combinations out there for like many, many, many generations of humans, <laughs> um, you know, that will exist in the future. And so our point of view is that, you know, like absolutely not, like in terms of price increasing over time, like our goal is to keep YATs as accessible as possible in terms of our pricing model. Uh, in terms of how the algorithm works, so the way the algorithm works is, as you pointed out, it's called rhythm score. And the way rhythm score works is this number between one and 100 that's algorithmically um, generated based on the length of the YAT, the popularity of the emojis that make up the YAT, and then also what we call like the pattern of the YAT. So for example, is it like three of a kind? Is it what we call an iHeart, like iHeart ice cream is an example of an iHeart yat, et cetera. So there's like lots of different patterns that we have defined sort of within the yat ecosystem that are more popular than others. And that's ultimately how rhythm score is determined. And that's how price is determined. But to be very clear, the vast, vast majority of yats are $4. And we have no plans of increasing the price, regardless of inflation or regardless of other like macroeconomic pressure. Right. Like we're like, literally our goal is to keep these as accessible as humanly possible. So last question for you, what's your yacht? <laughs> um, so my yacht is Eagle. So I am single emoji Eagle. I love birds. And so uh, are you an Eagles fan? <laughs> I'm not an Eagles fan. Actually, it's funny. We're we're members of Unicode, and so we get to like learn more about what future emojis are going to be added to the overall like global emoji set. So my favorite type of bird is actually a raven, but they didn't have a raven emoji, so I picked the second best thing I could find, which was eagle. Cool. Yeah, I really want a biryani emoji. So if you can uh, help make that happen for me, that would be awesome. <laughs> that would be totally awesome. I agree. Uh, I, yeah. well, I'll, I'll work on that. I'll work on that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Naveen. Yeah, thank you for having me. Really, really appreciate it. So yeah, thank you guys. Thanks for chatting. Thanks for listening. We'll be back every week with the top crypto news and interviews with experts in the space. You can catch us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite podcast platform. And subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction, at techcrunch.com forward slash newsletters. You can also follow us at chain underscore reaction on Twitter for the occasional Twitter space about breaking crypto news. We'll see you next week. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Lucas Matney, along with my co-host, Anita Ramswamy. We are produced by Yashad Kulkarni and our associate producer is Maggie Stamets, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.